This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink. It is really a story that belongs in the pages of a, of a kind of a Victorian novel. You know, it beggars belief at times when you listen to it and you hopefully you'll you'll kind of get what I'm saying as the story progresses. But it did really happen. And it happened back in 1971. But first, let's let's set the scene. Use your imagination and imagine a tiny inflatable life raft, six feet by four feet, floating in the Pacific Ocean, 200 miles, 200 miles from the nearest land which happens to be the Galapagos Islands. That is the nearest land in question. Now, on board this raft, it's not your typical shipwreck crew of one or two individuals, sailors, etc. It's a man, Dougal Robertson, and his wife, Lynn. Then there's Douglas, Dougal's son, who is 18 years of age at the time, and the 10-year-olds, two 10-year-olds, twins, Neil and Sandy. So there's five. Then there's a hitchhiker. Now, don't ask me what a hitchhiker's doing 200 miles from land near the Galapagos Islands, but there is a hitchhiker, and his name is Robin. Um, he's not really part of this story, but he's there, so it's important that we, we name-check him. So there's six people. There's six people in, in, a, in, a, in a life raft. And now, attached to this life raft, it's in one of these inflatables, is a wooden dinghy, which is, is kind of full of water and partially submerged, but salvaged. It's attached by a tether to the life raft. And Dougal, the father, has just asked Douglas to perform one almighty task. Desperation makes you think anything's possible. I looked at him and said, Dad, I'd rather die here with you than die out there alone. I said, I'm not going to do it. And that was the first time I'd ever <laughs> had the balls to tell my dad that I was going to not do something he told me to do, you know. And he said, Douglas, I'm sorry. Even asking, I should have known better. What was the question he asked? So what he'd asked him to do was they they had just been shipwrecked. They had lost their boat, and we're going to get onto that because it's it's an incredible incident that leads to that sinking of the boat called the Lucette that they had been sailing on. But what he'd asked him to do is he made some mental calculations in his head, and he said, "Look, we're two hundred miles from land. We've got a dinghy. We've got a raft. You jump in that dinghy." And you row 200 miles back to land to get help. Now, you can see why Douglas drew a line there. Yeah. And he said that was the first time he'd ever said no to his dad, who he idolised, incidentally. Now, um, you can see why he drew a line, because it was against the current and it was also against the wind. And he actually went into some detail telling me that it would have taken him, uh, I think, eight days, even if he rowed at full strength. And, of course, he, he had no food, he had no rations, he had no water. The family had enough water to last them 10 days. So he quickly drew a line under that idea and just said, I, I ain't doing that, Dad. And then he came up with, Dougal came up with a different plan. But I, I just want to kind of give you the background. Th this story is, is so remarkable because this was 1971. OK, now, 30 years prior to that, in the Second World War, Dougal had been a junior watchkeeping officer on board a ship called the SS Segoing. Now, there's a link here. There's, there's a reason why this is important, because one morning on a routine patrol in the Bay of Bengal, the ship was attacked and sunk by Japanese aircraft. Dougal survived, 
But his partner and their baby son, who were on board, tragically did not, despite his desperate attempts at rescuing them. Now, he was absolutely devastated by this, as you can imagine, and he would eventually retire from his life at sea in 1952. A couple of years later, he met and married Lynn, and the couple went on to have four children, the eldest of whom was Douglas. Now, that chapter isn't directly linked to the decision that they took a few years later to sail around the world, but when you listen to the story, it's not hard to make the connection or miss the irony, actually, of what was to happen later on. So if we fast forward now to 1968, and Dougal, who had subsequently retired from his days on, on the ocean, he was on his farm in the Pennines, bored and listless and seeking an adventure, and his family and he were listening to the wireless. Robin Knox Johnson had just won the round-the-world race, and my dad was describing the privations of being at sea alone on a yacht, a small boat, and Neil, my brother Neil, said in a joking way, well, Daddy, you're a sailor, why don't we sail around the world? Kids should be careful what they say, <laughs> because <laughs> that sparked an idea in Dougal's head. Why not? He could do it. And that's what we did. And lo and behold, two years later, we'd acquired the boat called the Lucette, and we were setting up to sail around the world. So a 10-year-old yeah. has an idea. <laughs> the, thing, the thing I thought about this is like, there is a reason why nine, 10-year-olds are not sort of lead decision makers. <laughs> wow. Why don't we do it, Dad? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. But it was just kind of the excuse that he'd been waiting for. He was itching for an adventure. He was bored at home. He didn't want to be a farmer. He had no desires. He was He was yearning to get back on the ocean waves. And you know what, he just thought he'd take his family with him. And there was no plan. I mean, this guy was not meticulous. He was like, yeah, we'll do this, this, this. And he was, they were kind of making it up as they went along. But they acquired a boat called the Lucette, which appears in Douglas's book, The Last Voyage of the Lucette, an old wooden schooner built in 1922. And Douglas was so fond of it that he named his book after yeah. her. It was Dougal, his wife and four kids on a round-the-world journey, which started in torrid circumstances the moment they left the English coast. When we set sail from Falmouth, we had never, ever been to sea. We hadn't even been for much as, so much as a sail round the bay. We, we headed straight into a Biscay storm, you know. It was extremely rough, very, very dangerous. We nearly got run down by a fishing boat. We uh, lost the sail. We uh, were pumping all the way down because the, the uh, boat was making so much water. We were wet through. We had no dry clothes left. For eight of those days, you could not even stand up. You had to tie yourself, lash yourself to something to stop yourself from being thrown over the side or thrown into the uh, hole or something like that, you know. And uh, it was, to me, it was terrifying. I'd never seen waves like that. And we were on such a little boat. The waves looked like big blue mountains. And I looked at the birds, the gannets flying up above, you know, and I thought, bloody hell. They've got it so easy, you know what I mean? They, they, they just fly around. <laughs> they don't care about the sea. But, uh, of course, we were stuck in it. If that's the beginning of your journey, you're <laughs> not a sailor. Yeah. I mean, you give up right then, right? Exactly. You reach and your destination it. and you stop. And, you know, he said to me, he said, the first seven days were hell. But on the eighth day, we had beautiful weather and we forgot all about those first seven days. And then well, we need to move the story on because it's a lengthy one. They sail around, the, well, they, they get halfway around the world. What they did was they, sail, they sailed from uh, Falmouth to Lisbon and then on to the Canary Islands where they had incredible weather. They fell in love with the whole experience. From there, they took 33 days to sail across the Atlantic into the Bahamas. And they were making it up as they went along. But the master plan was to sail through the Caribbean, spend some time working in Miami, which they did, to fund the next leg of their trip. 
then head down to Panama, through the Panama Canal, and out across the Pacific Ocean, which we've learned in recent weeks is a pretty big place, heading to Antipodean Islands, New Zealand and Australia. So 18 months after they left Falmouth, 18 months after they left Falmouth, their dream adventure, which was something out of an Enid Blyton novel, it was destined to turn into a nightmare. We were 200 miles west of Cape Espinosa in the Galapagos. It was uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Bang, bang, bang. Like that. And the whole boat shuddered and lifted us up out of the water. I thought we'd gone aground on a rock or something. And then there was a big sound behind me, enough to stop me talking to my dad. I turned around and looked at the water, the waves behind, and three whales, killer whales, were swimming behind us. One of them with its head split open, so there was blood pouring into the sea. And I knew something was... And I looked down again, and my dad was up to his waist in water. And he said to me, we're sinking. And I said, don't be silly, Dad, we can't sink here. And he says, we're sinking. He says, abandoned ship. And I said, abandoned ship to where, Dougal? I said, we're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. He says, I don't know, but abandoned ship over there, pointing to the sea. I thought, this can't be happening. This just cannot be happening. I'll go forward and take the sails down. And by the time I've taken the sails down, I'll wake up and the dream will be over. So I went forward and my dad disappeared for a while. Strange thing was that my dad was sunk in 1942 by the Japanese and he was reliving the events that had happened in 1942 back in 1972, 30 years later. But he came up on deck and said, Douglas, what the hell are you doing? Because I'm still feeling the bloody sails now on the, on, <laughs> on the boom. And he said, get the life raft over the side. And I immediately sort of snapped into action then. Life raft was over the side. I was washed over the side with the raft, but I put the dinghy over first. The whole sinking incident from beginning to end lasted two minutes. My mum was busy gathering things and getting the kids ready and you know, they, they got their toys, got a toy each they were allowed and they, she put their life jackets on and she got the water ready and some, some rations, but we lost them all as we got into the raft. Uh, the dinghy sank alongside the Lucette, but it was it could float. But Dougal did come up on deck. After about a minute, he came up on deck, but it seemed like a lifetime, you know, and he, he then started you know, he said, Luke Douglas, get the raft over the side. And I did. I put the oars in the dinghy. I put the uh, dinghy over. I've got, but then lifted the raft over, and the wave hit me in the small of the back. And I was, I'd already pulled the cord, the inflation cord for the, for the raft. And the raft was inflating. Thank God. Thank God it was inflating, because if that had not inflated, we would have been lost right there. An incredible story there, and he, and he tells it very vividly. It does beg the question. And who am I to say, well, I'm going to say it anyway, a father making the decision to take two 10-year-old twins. Yeah, it's reckless. I mean... It's reckless to be on belief. I mean, Douglas was 18. How old was Douglas Douglas was 18 by that point. But yeah, no, I mean, it's... uh, Well, we get on to the the attack itself, and it was a very unforeseen event. It was a very freak event. There's actually... There's never been a documented case of a wild orca killing a human being. It's happened in captivity... It's infamously happened at SeaWorld a few times. Uh, But I think this is the only documented case of orcas sinking a boat like the Lucette. Um, And I asked Douglas why they attacked, and he had a theory that really just caught me off guard. 
I'll tell you what had happened three weeks beforehand on the way from Panama to Galapagos. A big baleen whale, a sea whale, S-E-I, had tried to make love to the boat. It had come up alongside us and was rubbing its body up alongside and, um, you know, uh, it, it had a very large member sticking out, which... And, and it was sort of rubbing itself up against, oh and, and not, not I was not expecting response. that. <laughs> not getting a response, it 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 blew this foul stench of its blowhole all over us, and then it was dipped down the other side, on the starboard side, and then it was gone. Now clearly, that whale thought we were another whale, you see, for for the purposes of mating. So why couldn't the killer whales have thought that we were another whale for the eating? One of the whales, the biggest one, his head was split open. Wild animals don't hurt themselves on purpose. No. And they don't take risks. But he clearly had mis- misunderstood what we were. Naughty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was completely taken aback. I was like, what does that, you know, you, you, see, you think a story's going in one direction and you do not expect no. that little side theory to come in but you know it might explain it you just uh, you just never know i thought it was a very interesting sub point anyway uh, but let's get back to the scene utter carnage now an entire family decamping from a sinking wooden boat to a life raft and a wooden dinghy which is partially submerged so it's a desperate scramble to stay afloat and make sure everyone gets into that raft alive the raft was leaking i was trying to fix the raft my mum was in the water the others have gotten into the raft by then, but the killer whales were still swimming around. And I thought, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. These killer whales are going to eat me. I kept feeling for my legs, you know. They were still there. Uh, I was the last one in the raft. The, the time elapsed was only five minutes. But it seemed like a lifetime. That was the most scary thing that I've ever uh, experienced. It was really strange seeing everybody sitting there in a raft and they were all yellow, like, you know, and from the, from the canopy over their heads. And, you know, this was our new world. So from that moment, that idyllic, blissful cruise to shipwreck and devastation. And there's a family of six in a raft with a dinghy t- attached to them, tethered to them, which they've just about managed to salvage. They've got 10 days of water. They're 200 miles from land. As we heard at the beginning of this interview, Douglas has said no to the rowing job. So what do they do next? My dad was an atheist, you know, and my mum was a Christian, devout Christian. And my mum said, let's say the Lord's Prayer. And I thought, F- I'm going to say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> my dad might be right, but I feel that my mother's probably more right. And, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's more important if you're going to be wrong, be wrong on the good yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the consequences of being wrong were now very significant indeed. You know? <laughs> and I thought, no, I'm going to say the Lord's Prayer. As my dad put in Survivor Savage Sea, his book, we looked for a rescue ship that could not be found. We knew we were on our own. We knew we were miles from land and there was no real hope of survival. So we turned to my father and my mum said to him, Dougal, tell us straight, what chance do we have? And my dad thought, he looked at us and he thought, shall I lie to them and uh, tell them everything's going to be all right? Or do I owe it to them to say, look, we're in trouble. We're in serious trouble here. And he decided to tell us that we were in serious trouble. 
and that he would tell us the truth as he saw it then. And as he was telling us the truth, and he told it like this, he said, well, we were, we were 200 miles west of Cape Espinosa when the whales hit us. We are in the southeasterly trades. If southeasterly trades blow up to the um, doldrums, which are about five degrees north, we can't sail back to the Galapagos Islands because the current of the wind is uh, against us. We can't sail on to the uh, Marquesas, which is downwind and down current, because that will take us 100 days in a raft like this, and we haven't got enough water, but for 10 days. And he said, as he was explaining to us, a plan was coming to him. It was helping him formulate a plan about how we could perhaps get out of this. And we looked at the frigate birds flying around us. And I looked at them and said, Dad, they've got millions of years on us. He said, yes, Douglas, but we have got brains. And with brains, we can make tools. And with tools, we can survive. And I said, well, it's a bloody long way. And he said, yes, I know. But we'll live day by day. And we need to come up with a plan. So I, and I said to him, well, look, Dad, we've got enough water for 10 days. And it rains in the doldrums. This time of year, it rains heavily. And we can't survive without water. So why don't we sail to the doldrums, get as much water as we can, and then decide what to do from there? You know what? It's like we've been on an 18-month training course for this. You know what I mean? We were so tough and so able. If anybody could do it. And Dougal was the man. He was the man. I'm telling you, the sharks used to swim around waiting for somebody to die or something gets thrown over. But we used to say that they were scared of Dougal. <laughs> like they'd say, now Dougal's on watch. You know, we better stand, we better keep clear. <laughs> and you can hear how proud he was of his dad. You can just hear it in his voice, even though his dad was a complete lunatic <laughs> who had pretty much gotten them into this situation. And sharks were circling the yeah, dinghy. Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's the open ocean. I mean, yeah. Everything was circling the dinghy, but... Uh, I have a confession. I didn't know until this moment that the doldrums wasn't just some place you go when you're yeah. down in the dumps. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, that's where you get. That's where it gets its name from. Right. Yeah. Because it's where sailors don't want to go, but yet they were trying to get there because it's basically near the equator. It's where the trade winds meet, the north and south winds yep. meet, and it's very calm there, so it's not good for sailing, but it rains frequently, and they had 10 days of water, so they needed to get somewhere where they could collect water. It was basically the most audacious pit stop <laughs> in nautical history. Um, although, a week into this, they came agonisingly close to being rescued. On the sixth day, a ship called Strat Cook sailed right past us. We fired two parachute flares and three hand flares and it didn't see us. And that nearly broke us, you know, because we, we could have been saved. I'll tell you something, I was watching Titanic the other day and, you know, when they were all in the water, they were blowing their whistles. Yeah. And it took me straight back to that moment when I was blowing on that bloody whistle trying to raise the alarm because we fired the flares and the ship was still sailing past us. How close was the ship to you? A mile away. You could read its name. <sighs> and, and Dougal said, you know what? He says, we're in greater risk of being run down than picked up. He said, we've got to change our mentality. He said, we can't rely on anybody to save us. We have got to think survival. We have got to catch fish. We've got to catch rainwater. We've got to have reserves. And with those reserves... We have got to sail to America, and this, this, that, that, that's our plan. We're not thinking about rescue now. And we resolved that. And in that moment when that ship left us, we resolved that we would make it on our own. So that brought about that near, that near miss 
agonising as it was, brought about a change in mentality. Now, we talked about water and getting to the doldrums being important to, to refuel their water supplies. What about food? As Douglas describes here in graphic detail, by the way, it doesn't take much for survival instincts to take over. We caught a turtle. We'd, figured, we'd lost two of them, but we managed to catch them. We figured out how to catch a turtle, and we were going to butcher it that day. And we did butcher it that day, in fact. Then that ship sailed past us. So my dad's book, he's, he's made it happen on three different days just to make the days different, you know. But that, in actual fact, it all happened on the sixth day. There's so, something kind of feral about that when, when you think about butchering a turtle to survive. Very few tough. people... No, you're tough. You're tougher than you think. You think? I can't imagine you're, myself you're doing tougher, that. You're tougher than your life's on the line. You're tougher than you think. When the Red Indians killed their animals, they prayed over their bodies and thanked them for giving their life up so that they could live. And I identified with that. I knew I had to take their lives. And I was explained to my dad, I said, Dad, we can't catch these animals. We have to hunt them. We lost the first two turtles. I said, we have to hunt them. We have to have a mindset. We're not going to let them go. Once we get them, we're going to kill them straight away. And the third one that came along, I got it, wrapped it up in a rope, pulled it round to the raft, and my dad... Me and my dad hauled it on to the dinghy and he cut his throat straight away, all in one movement. And we caught the blood. I read in a book somewhere that you can drink the blood. And I didn't tell my dad it was a fictional novel. <laughs> and uh, he said, actually, it tastes quite nice. He said, it's not salty at all. I mean, there's something so feral about feral. that. I was going to say uh, the but, same word. You know, that's it. That's what happens. You know, they were Survival. just desperate to survive. And... Uh, and he says he, he has, he, you know, it was a strange experience doing that. Uh, Stephen Callahan said a similar thing about the fish that he caught as well. Very strange that your your food and the, the fish that you were eating, or the turtle in this case, represented so much to them. But uh, they made it to the doldrums. And when they got there, the weather was beautiful. It was sunny. There was no rain. They thought, we've blown it. We've absolutely blown it. We've, we've, we've come all this way only to be met with, uh, with no water, dehydrated, and finally then, their luck changed as the weather cooperated. The third morning, it rained like you'd never believe. Uh, we were so happy. We filled all our water cans up, wealth beyond measure. And we drank, we all held our mouths open and the rain poured in and the plan had worked. Stage one was over. We filled everything up with water. Now we had to think about sailing to America. Was that the best drink you've ever had? Yeah, it was pretty good. Wow. It was cold. So cold. We were naked. Wow. We had no clothes. It was so bloody cold. We were shivering, singing. We were singing to keep warm. And the lightning, the thunderstorms were bloody hell. The lightning was landing in the sea around. You could smell the cordite, you know, of the lightning. And it was just... I said to my dad, you know, I said, this is hell on earth. This is what hell must be like. You know, you could smell cordite, you could have flashes of lightning landing in the sea, straight down, like a straight bolt coming straight out of the bottom of the cloud, you know. Dehydrated, they managed to get to the doldrums, it rained, they managed to refuel on their water supplies, but at this point they had simply lost track of how long they'd been adrift, they'd lost track of time, they were clinging to survival, rationing water, eating what they could catch, but time was running out. We're beginning to hallucinate. We reckon we'd been at sea 30 days or so by then, maybe 35 days even. Then it rained really heavily that night and we filled everything with water. And we had done some rowing and Dougal had said, said that night, he said, tomorrow, Douglas, 
serious rowing, 50 miles. And I said, yes, Dad, that's what we'll be, 50 miles. The day went by and we, we got the rig ready and we got the oars ready and we tried a bit of rowing and had to adjust things. And it's quite tiring. And we said, well, we'll leave that for the day and we'll do, do it tomorrow now. And the sea's a little bit rough anyway. And um, Dougal said, there's a ship. He was pointing at the horizon. I, I said, a ship? And I said, yeah, there's a ship, Luke, Dad. It's a bloody ship. <laughs> Have we got any flares left? There, there's somewhere. And Dougal get, get, finds a flare and he holds the flare up. Anyway, that was the best day of our lives. And that, that ship altered course. And we watched and the ship just suddenly was upon us. And uh, they looked, the Japanese looked at us and, and they, they could see there was children in the boat, you know. And it was just, uh, they could not believe what they were seeing. Well, at this point, how far away from land were you? Douglas. You know what? We were 10 days away from land. We would have made it. But nobody was turning this down. This was a, this was a welcome interruption. So you, were, you, you believe you would, have, you would have made your way to land and survived the, the ordeal without the ship intervening? We were, our plan was working. We were te- you know what? My dad's navigation, we were 25 miles out in latitude and 100 miles out in longitude after 38 days sailing that dinghy which sailed 750 miles and we were 10 days off the Costa Rican coast that's incredible yeah and having obviously never met Dougal he has long since passed on um, you just get the feeling you just know the kind of guy he was he almost there would have been a big part of him that would have wanted to go now nah, we're alright thanks we're just going to keep going <laughs> yeah. my plan that I came up with to save my family is working yeah. and uh, you can kind of feel like he was there was probably a small part of him that was a bit sad that they didn't get to execute that plan in its entirety but uh, I asked Douglas about the emotions of that moment and of course the irony of the fact that it was a Japanese boat remember in 1942 sunk by the Japanese Dougal Robertson, it was a Japanese boat that had come to his rescue. The Japanese boat picked us up exactly 30 years after they'd sunk my dad in Trincomalee and he'd lost his first family, his son and his partner. The Japanese picked them up and saved his second family. Fact is stranger than fiction. You know, when you talk about being shipwrecked, people always want to know about the, the moment of the shipwreck, the killer whales attacking, the getting off of the Lucette how you made it, how you did it. And the other bit they always ask about is, well, what's it like to be safe after 38 days in the bloody life raft, you know? And it's pretty good. <laughs> and Dougal, he put it best. He said he reached a pinnacle of contentment he would never reach again in his life, and he knew it. And he was sad because of that. <laughs> you know, you have very mixed emotions, you know. First of all, they threw a rope out to us, and they, they missed with the rope, and we thought, my God... We, we, we were being troubled to these guys, you know, we need to catch this rope, like, you know, we caught this rope and they hauled us on, alongside. They couldn't believe what they were looking at, you know, and we smelt like you wouldn't believe. We are covered in rotting, rancid oil and rancid fat and old smelly blood. And he said, oh, God, and they hauled us on board, eager hands hauled us on board. And we looked back at the Pacific Ocean I thought, my God, we survived 38 days. We, we didn't know how many days we'd been adrift, the Japanese told us. We'd been 38 days adrift on that ocean and we'd survived. That is extraordinary. You know? And we, we loved that sea. We loved it. We missed it. 
we looked back across the Pacific, and that's where my dad came up with the title, Survive the Savage Sea. He said, the Savage Sea, he said, we survived it. He said, you know what? We did quite well, really, compared to the way Stone Age men lived. He said, you know, we caught meat, we caught rainwater, we caught a shark, we survived. Oh, it's amazing. It always makes the hairs on the back of my neck yeah. stand up. He he just tells it like it happened yesterday. And of course, it's a long time ago, 1972. But there's just something so romantic about the whole adventure. And of course, very reckless as well from Dougal. But you can tell the pride that Douglas has for his dad in, in throughout this entire um, narration of the story, if you like. But um, just, just a couple of points here. Douglas wrote a poem. In fact, Douglas went on to write the book, The Last Voyage of the Lucette. And the dinghy, which bore them to safety, along with the knitwork that his mum did, the messages that she scrawled on that with the knitwork that they salvaged, they're actually in the National Maritime Museum in Falmouth. You wow. can actually see them. And Douglas's poem can be found in the pages of The Last Voyage of the Lucette. So while I was speaking to him, he was kind enough to recite for me a few lines. O sentinel of the southern seas, impervious to our plight, you fly aloft in majesty and hold us in your sight. Will you still be with us in the desperate days ahead? Do you offer hopes of landfall or mourning for the dead? What a story. What a story that is. The Robertson family, all of them safe. Yeah, they got back. Yeah, they all got back in one piece. 38 days in a dinghy in the Pacific Ocean. Thank goodness for Dougal. Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.